All right, everybody. Uh, happy Friday. Um, this is today's podcast, podcast uh, version two. Because the first time I did the podcast, I forgot to hit the record button. So I just sat here and talked to myself for 45 minutes. So hopefully I'll give better answers this time than I did the last time. It's a very frustrating thing to have happen. So, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, well. So here, let's, uh, let's do the do-over. I'm going to start from scratch. If Collaborate ends conservatorship next year prior to raising capital, do the preferreds have to first be dealt with, properly dealt with? Uh, yeah. I don't see how... Well, they're raising capital right now eternally, right? Because they're retaining earnings. So they're not going out into the market and doing a capital raise. But, but yeah, I don't see a scenario where they can exit conservatorship with the potential liability overhanging. Because the potential liability would take capital. If, if they lost it, the liability would take the capital ratios below what would be acceptable to exit conservatorship. So they have to deal with them first. Um, thanks for informing us about the distressed investing conference on December 2nd. It's very excited to know they'll probably talk about Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, PCG. Could you please share the presentations and your takeaways of the conference after you attend it? If I'm allowed to, yes. Um, it's 50-50 at these things. Sometimes uh, guys don't mind sharing their stuff. They want it out there. Sometimes guys want to keep it just in the room. So, you know, it's, it, and it's, it's, you know, there's five speakers, you know, sometimes it'll be, you know, three say yes, two say no, there's no rhyme or reason to it. So, um, anything I'm able to share, I will, um, regarding PG&E, PG&E plunged about 30% October 10th after the U.S. Bankruptcy Court judge pulls the plug in the company's exclusive control over its organization process. It seems the fate of PG&E solely depends on the fight between shareholders and bondholders. It's very interesting to know that today's positive news, PG&E has lined up more than $34 billion in debt financing to help with its plan to exit bankruptcy protection and pay wildfire victims. This did not affect the stock price at all. As I know, David Tepper made lots of money in PG&E bankruptcy in 2001 through investing in Common and now has of Q2 2019 has again about 17 million shares. His basic thesis might be that the government will keep them afloat since the public's best interest. In addition, PG&E seems to be deep undervalued. It's a tangible book value of $19 for a stock price of 8 What you take on it, please. So my take on it is pretty similar to what I said last week. Um, the liabilities are unknown. And that's a frightening thing, you know, in bankruptcy investing. Uh, in the GGP case, we knew the liabilities. They weren't going to grow anymore. The question was... Could they attach more properties to satisfy that? Or would the bank's going to be forced to either refinance or take a loss? And as we know back in 2009, 2010, the last thing the banks could do because of mark the market was take another loss on commercial properties. So they had to refinance when they couldn't attach more other properties to satisfy their liens. Okay. So the liabilities were known. And we knew they had non-recourse financing. So it gave us a high degree of certainty that 
their banks are going to be forced to refinance and that GGP was going to be okay. And GGP was, it was cash flow positive. They just couldn't pay these balloon loan payments off. They were making money. So PG&E is a different story. They got to spend a billion some dollars to upgrade power lines. And that's just phase one. They're going to be doing this for quite some time. So that $800 million of power line work that they said they're going to do, that's a drop in the bucket to what it's eventually going to be. It's going to be much higher than that. And then you have the unknown liabilities of the victims of the forest fires. So for me, it, that gets me worried. And the second thing is you can't really use book value in this scenario because the potential liability of the lawsuits is not being calculated as book value right now. So depending on what that liability ends up being, and then they have to pay it, that book value drops significantly. So that $19 of book value doesn't calculate a lot of things. So I'd be very careful with using that um, as any kind of valuation metric, given what they have out there. And given the fact that they are going to have to spend much more money than they are, are currently doing to finish the upgrades of those power lines. Um, regarding Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, my takeaways of the Eighth Circuit are the hearing at the Eighth Circuit. Judge was impatient with Thompson. FHFA and Treasury lawyers defended well. The final statement of Thompson was strong and straight to the point. Overall, I'm not optimistic about the hearing. What's your take, please? You can't. So I don't remember which one it was, but it was one of the first appellate court ones that we lost. And the dissenting judge you know, basically said that uh, only in banana republics that things like this happen. Um, I don't remember which circuit court it was, so I don't want to say it and say the wrong one. But in general, when that hearing was over, plaintiffs, people, shareholders, were very optimistic about the future outcome. Because the most aggressive questions in that hearing went to the government. So you really can't, you know, oftentimes in these circuit court hearings, <clears throat> judges will have a basic idea of where they want to go and what they're going to rule because they've read all the pleadings and stuff beforehand. And they're going to hammer attorneys to prove their point for them. So sometimes the most aggressive questioning goes to the guy whose side you're on. Because if I'm a judge and I'm going to come out with a ruling, I don't want it to get overturned. I want it to be right. So this guy, this guy before me arguing the case... I'm going to blister him with questions to prove my point right. I'm going to give him every possibility he's wrong, every counterfactual, every case that could prove him wrong, and make him prove that I'm right. A lot of judges approach it that way. And, and the problem is, you know, these judges, they may question like this all the time, maybe their personality. But we don't know that because why? We, we don't, it's the first time I've ever heard them in our lives. And probably the last time we'll ever hear these judges question somebody. So it's really hard to judge. So don't, don't get too optimistic or too depressed based on the tone of questioning uh, in an appellate court setting because every judge does it differently. They're just very different. Um, I thought Thompson, so, so then, how do you, then how do you go about it? I base it on, you know, I thought Thompson was the best lawyer in the room. 
I thought Thompson presented our case as shareholders to the judges great. I thought he deflected, not deflected, rebuffed their questions when they challenged him. I thought he had great comebacks. A couple of times he said, well, you know, well, you know, the, the, the um, one of the judges said, well, so-and-so case actually um, refutes what you say. And he was like, oh, actually, it helps us because of this, this, and this. So I thought... He had fantastic knowledge of the cases. I thought the treasury lawyers were kind of dull and dry. Um, you know, one time they finished before the time was up and just kind of there went silence in the room, like we don't have anything else to say. But I thought Thompson could have basically talked to them for an hour about why each case was what it was and and how um, and how and how and uh, and how it helped the cases and how how it's going to work out. So um, I was optimistic hearing it. Not. Be- not because of the judge, but because of the way he the way he presented his case. I thought he's by far the best lawyer in that room that day. Um, again, regarding Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, do you hear any news about the FHFA financial advisors deadline proposed October fifteenth? So it's done. In addition, what's your take on Calabria's talk Thursday at George Mason University? He says some kind he says companies might have to operate under consent degrees with the government because they might reach a point where they have sufficient capital to exit conservatorship, but not enough to adhere to. FHFA's requirements are these all, all, all these are positive. Yeah, so you know I don't know when FHFA is going to announce the um, who they've chosen, whether it's one or two people to be the advisors. You know I know they have to go through this dog and pony. I, you know I don't think there's any question that um, they know who they're going to pick, but you know they're a government agency. Everything goes out to bid, so they have to do this dog and pony show of letting people submit bids. They're blind bids, so no one knows who's bidding. No one knows who's bidding how much, except the FHFA, and they're going to come out with a decision whenever they're ready. What is interesting, though, is last week, if you remember correctly, um, I did mention that I was hearing rumors that the GSEs themselves are going to hire financial advisors. And on the 15th, um, Calabria confirmed that, saying that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were going to have to hire their own financial advisors because they are not a government agent. They are still shareholder-owned enterprises, even though they are conservatorship. Uh, I do not think that they have to go through the whole bid process. I think they can just choose who they want, again, because they're technically still privately owned companies. So that's very good news. That means the process is going, right? Um, He says that companies may have to operate under 10 degrees. Yes, that goes back to the 1992... Uh, Financial Safety and Solvency Act, I think was the name, exact name of it. And it had to do with the GSEs and um, the director, you know, setting uh, capital levels for them, capital buffer levels for on-balance sheet, off-balance sheet assets. And then he could also set levels higher than that. Um, and if the, you know, the GSEs were found to be... Um, under those capital levels, as long as they are financially profitable, they could they could operate under, with the, under an agreement with the government, sort of thing. And this happens all the time in um, in the banking industry. So this isn't something that you know. This isn't another thing where Calabria and Mnuchin are conspiring to you know do something that's never been done, like the network sweep and things like that. This is standard practice in the banking industry. When banks get in trouble, their capital levels fall too low. You know, there's still profitable banks or, you know, whatever happens, um, they can operate under consent degrees with the FDIC to operate, you know, under certain conditions 
until um, their capital levels raise to, to whatever level that needs to be set at. So this is no big deal. What the big deal is, and what the good news is, is what this might mean for the what, what they have to raise. So the consent, the 1992 degree, I think it was two and a half percent, two and a half percent for off balance sheet. Um, I think it was two and a half percent for on balance sheet and a half a percent for off balance sheet. That was the that was the ratio, and that was what they had to. Um, that would have, that would be their capital levels. What that means for Fannie is about twenty to twenty two billion dollars. You know they may be able to hit that by Q three next year. They're going to have three billion this quarter. Q4, another four. They're going to be close. They could hit that with a, a small capital raise in between. Maybe do a five or $10 billion capital raise. Like a baby raise. But the key is, and as I said last week, is they have to do this before the election. You don't know if you're going to win the election next year. And if you lose... Calabria and Minutia will be replaced. And who knows what the new guys coming in are going to want to do. We, we don't know. They may say, you know what, this conservatorship has worked out pretty well. Let's just leave them here. Let's just nationalize them for Christ's sake. You don't know what they're going to do. So if this is your crowning achievement... Your stated goal is, as of Calabria, from day one, then you need to start doing this right away. Because you, you, you're not going to raise any money if they're a conservatorship. Because what are you going to tell investors? Oh, the conservatorship's going to be over in six months. Well, okay, well, he said, you know, it's been 12 years. Or 11 years. So no one's going to buy for a single second any promises that the GSC is going to be out of conservatorship anytime soon and pump in, oh, I, oh, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 billion dollars. They have to be out of it before. They have to be. So coinciding with that is us junior preferred shareholders. You can't, so again, just for sake of argument, say Fannie Mae needs 20, 20 to 22 billion. Well, you can't exit conservatorship under consent degree with a possible 10 to $15 billion liability hanging over your head. Because if you lose that court case, that liability now goes on your books, well, there goes your capital level, and you're back in conservatorship which is a political catastrophe, right? I mean, Mnuchin and, 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 um, and Calabria, they, they'd be strung up politically if that happened. So you have to take care of the junior preferred shareholders first. 
If you look at the order, I think that to set the capital levels, agree to let them operate under consent degree when they hit those levels, set the future capital levels beyond that for when they can exit the consent degree, that's step number one. That should be done within a month, if that long. Step two is due to prefer shareholders. Because once you've set your capital levels, now you're into the, how are we going to get there? That, that's the next step. How do we get there? We've reformed the GSEs. We've stopped, well, we've allowed them to retain their earnings. We have to end the net worth sweep, right? Because no one's going to put money on the thing with a net worth sweep. So, so if I back up, that's, that's step one. Net worth sweep, consent degree, capital levels, and future capital levels, Okay. That, that's step one. All those can be done at once. Once you've done that, you've done everything. You've done everything. Now you just have to get more capital into the GSC because everything else is basically done. Well, you can't even begin that process until you settle the lawsuits. Every conversation you have with potential investors is going to be, what about the lawsuits? How are you going to treat them? And, and, and let's be honest. If they come out and say, oh, we're going to issue you know, $30 billion in preferred stock, who's going to buy it? If they're looking at these the existing junior preferred shareholders getting screwed, right? Who's going to buy that stock? And who's going to invest in a company with a potential 10 to $15 billion liability hanging over its head? Any investor with any brains is going to say, you take care of this stuff first and then come talk to us. We don't even want to have a conversation with you because we can't value your company because we have no idea what's happening here. Are you going to hold out and maybe get the liability in your books? Are you going to convert them? Are you going to convert what price? Are you going to give them par? So how do we value your company and make an investment decision for enormous amounts of capital? when we don't even know what's going on here with existing shareholders. So they have no option. They can't even begin the process of, you know, talking to investors and trying to raise money and, and getting an idea of the market until they deal with their preferred shareholders. And along those lines, ironically enough, um, Inside Mortgage Finance today said, Treasury is weighing a legal settlement with the junior shareholders of Fannie and Freddie Mac stock. At least that was one rumor making the rounds between both New York and Washington. One veteran MBS source said talks between these investors who sued the government of the quarterly prophecy have taken on new urgency ever since the Trump White House released its housing finance reform blueprint in early September. So, I mean, the stocks aren't reacting because they get it. We've been here before, right? We have, right? We've been here. They have to settle. They have to settle. They're going to settle. They're going to settle. They haven't settled. Um, I think the Fifth Circuit loss was huge. I think that the case getting remanded back to Lambreth, who started all this, was huge. And Lambreth has a history of 
different decisions when cases are sent back to him. And he also has the benefit now of two years worth of discovery that he did not have when he made his first decision. Um, and that discovery basically proves that the government was, what's the right word, uh, less than honest with him in their arguments the first time they presented to him. And uh, judges aren't exactly fond of that type of behavior. So I think the government's in for a very, very tough road in the Lambeth Court. And I think they recognize that. They're not stupid. So if, I'm, if I put myself in Calabria Mnuchin's shoes, I have an uncertain election coming in November, which means I need to wrap up as much as I can before that time. Because once November hits, we have no idea what's going to happen. It can all be taken care of with the consent degree, meaning once you're out of conservatorship, you will be released from the consent degree when your capital levels reach this, this amount. You can either do it organically through earnings or go out and raise capital in the markets, and that will be up to the, the GSEs how they handle that. But it all has to be done before next fall. And I'm not convinced that they can get to 20 to 22 billion before next election without doing some sort of raise in the meantime. They can do a test raise of $10 billion. That gets them where they need to be. And a $10 billion capital raise at that point in time I don't think, you know, they might have been able to go with five. But before they do that, what do they have to do? They have to do the GDP for shareholders. So I have a feeling that before, that before January or February is over, if it takes that long, I have a feeling that, you know, Things are going to happen. I think the first step to goose it is whether or not this, the Fifth Circuit is going to go to the Supreme Court. It should. We have conflicting circuit court opinions, and typically that is what it takes to get something for the Supreme Court because they're the ultimate arbiter of circuit court cases, right? Right now, there's really no law on it, right? You can have, you know, there's what, nine circuit courts? We have. One or two rule this way, one or two rule that way. What's the law? What's the final settlement? The final arbiter of those cases is the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court decides to take it, I think we get a settlement very soon because the absolute last thing the government wants is the Supreme Court of the United States saying they violated the law or the Constitution. I mean, that would be... Right? That would, you know, there's no way you get away from that. So I don't think it'll ever be heard before the Supreme Court. I think it will be settled before then if they agree to take it. If they decline to take it, 
then, you know, this could drag out a little longer. Because the government isn't really under a gun. Right? <clears throat> they could just file an appeal in Texas and, you know, they'll be back before them or, you know, next summer or next fall, whatever. It gives them, not to say that that won't settle then, but it definitely gives them, um, it definitely gives them less of a, the fire under their ass isn't lit, put it that way. Right? They can kind of drag it out a little bit because they, they don't, the shareholders don't have a ton of leverage. If shareholders go to the Supreme Court and you get one shot and you get a decision in June, the government can't take that risk. They just can't do it. So I just don't see a scenario where it goes that long. Um, where are we? Thanks for the information of Cannabis Entrepreneur Networking event in Boston. Unfortunately, I do not have time to attend. I have researched CBD related information from your links and your stock with tweets. It's very helpful. It seems like a very exciting new business venture. Could you share this presentation from the Boston event on your blog? I can't. Um, NDAs were signed for the specific ones because they were giving um, financials out. Um, I can just tell you that the financials are it's just beyond anything I've ever thought I'd see. Uh, you have medical dispensaries doing $15 million a year in free cash flow in year one, which is, I mean, it's unbelievable. The simple math, you have 29 dispensaries in Massachusetts. They serve New York State, Connecticut, Massachusetts. Sorry, Siri heard me. Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire. I mean, it's 20 million people, 29 dispensaries. <laughs> Do the math. <laughs> I mean, it's the and it's two years. It is two years to get a a uh, two years from the day you file an application to the license, the day you open your doors. You're lucky if you do it in two years. So those who have the current licenses and opening up dispensaries relatively soon, I'm looking for startup capital to open those dispensaries. The runway and the first mover advantage they have is just stunning. It's just stunning, and that that doesn't even include some of the tech stuff that's going on. Um, I could go on about it for an hour, but I won't do it. Um, the people are going to make obscene amounts of money with very little capital in the next two, three, or four years in, in cannabis, especially the state of Massachusetts. Massachusetts almost does in cannabis sales what Colorado does. And Colorado does it with over 330 dispensaries. There's 29 in the state of Massachusetts. Get yourself in our dispensary. It, they're just literally printing money. So, and not only that, but Mass has the highest, Mass is as short as the cannabis, so you have the highest prices in the nation. Or, I don't know if they're the highest, but some of the highest prices in the nation. So the margins, I mean, it's just, it's, I've never seen anything like it. Um, that being said, I cannot share the presentations, I'm sorry. Uh, but I did, what I did do is, on the, on the top of the blog, if you look, there's a, a tab called Cannabis Now. And if you click through that, it gives you information on the group that I'm with, um, a presentation they did, some stats on the mass market. Um, it just goes into some details as far as what the opportunity is, what's out there. 
gives you some numbers, some metrics, stuff like that. And and I do have, um, I put together a syndicate. We're investing on the the founders level in this thing, so we'll be involved in every deal, and that is open. So if anyone's interested and wants to get in, you have my contact information. Email me, text me, whatever, and we can do a discussion. I can set up a um, an actual presentation with the chairman of the other company um, to walk you through what's going on, how it works. Um, it's really, really simple, and it's just it's a fantastic opportunity. I think we have like three or four value plays people on it already, and looks like another three or four are going to come in. So that for me, that's the coolest part. Um, that you know, you got value place people on the blog and value people that we're going to invest together in in some of these uh, future business ventures. I think that's that's for me. That's probably the most exciting thing. I think that's really cool. Um, what's new with CHK? The stock price keeps dripping lower and lower. Um, that is a perfect um, analogy for it. It just drips, right? A couple pennies here, a couple pennies there. It's, it's people hate energy right now. Um, you know, it's it's not just CHK. It's it's Kinder Morgan. It's Texas Pacific Land Trust, Williams. Uh, they're just going nowhere right now. Um, but you know, this is like the banks, and from what late two thousand nine to two thousand twelve, banks didn't go anywhere. People hated the financials. They were getting sued by someone else every day, and this was happening, and that was happening. But they all ended up being great investments. You know, that's it's it's sort of the curse of the value investor is that you have to be willing to lag for a long time or for a period of time before you see the promised land on the other side. You know, and, you know Bank of America sucked for years for us before it rocketed higher. You know, there's lots of lots of investments we've made that turn out to be really good investments that just kind of didn't went nowhere. But at the end of the day, you know, Kinder Morgan just reported results were great, five percent dividend, potential for large buybacks next year, depending on the timing of certain projects. And the stock, you know, the stock's still where it was, around twenty bucks. They're selling assets. Kinder Morgan is selling assets at thirteen times EBITDA private equity. The company now is based. The company, the whole company, right now including its 5% dividend, is selling for seven to eight times EBITDA. That just goes to show you the, the, the dichotomy of, of, of what's going on. Same thing with Williams. They're selling assets 11 to 13 times EBITDA. They're valued the same way. Eventually, these things get corrected. Eventually, people are going to want to say, hey, you know what, 5% dividend, I want to be part of that. Because it's a buck this year, it's going to go to a buck twenty-five. It's going to go, the dividend for Kinder Morgan is going to go twenty-five percent next year. And that's that's there's nothing wrong with that, you know. But people don't want to pay for it right now, which is fine. You keep accumulating shares, and when it pays off, it'll pay off huge. You know, and not only that, so the comp- so the fundamentals behind the pipeline business and the oil and gas business is, are fine. We don't have enough pipelines. 
We don't have enough oil pipelines or gas pipelines. What does that mean? That means we have to keep building pipelines. What does that mean? Well, there's more money going for Kinder Morgan and, and Williams. Natural gas pipelines, we're, 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 we are scarily underserved in natural gas pipelines. What's going to happen to New York this winter, if we have a bad winter, people should be scared of. Because Williams Project has been blocked, they're now taking their reserves. It's October, folks. New York is going to natural gas reserves. We have a bad winter. It's going to be scary in New York. Or they're going to be doing what Boston did last winter because Boston has a shorter natural gas and importing liquefied natural gas from Russia or the places at seven, eight, nine, ten times the cost of what they pay for it through a pipeline. So something like that, I think, would be a very politically bad event for those people against pipelines. It's a very good one for those who want to build pipelines saying, hey, this is what happens when you restrict pipelines. People freeze. I'm telling you, that New York situation is not a good one. The reason Con Edison stopped doing hookups in New York is because they don't, they're scared about the supply that they can put the natural gas in in New York. Now they're being forced by New York to, to do the hookups, so they're going to do them. But there's not going to be enough gas coming in to service people. That leaves you to some very ugly options. You know, we just had the first, we're almost through the first wave of LNG, you know, the build out of that infrastructure. There's another wave coming behind it. There's already plans for another wave of LNG. This gas has got to get there somehow. So Kinder Morgan and Williams have years and years and years of growth in the pipeline segments ahead of them. Years and years of growth. This isn't a stagnant business. So they have that tailwind, right? You have every year more and more natural gases being used for electricity, right? Even the, even the whole natural gas, even the whole electric car thing, that's helpful to them. That doesn't hurt Kinder Morgan and Williams. It helps them. Why? Because electricity is generated by natural gas, increasingly more every year. So that's helpful to them too. So, it, you know, the fundamentals for the pipeline industry for natural gas are just fantastic. They're going to be for a long time. You're going to make a 5% dividend that's growing double digits every year. So I'm comfortable with that because I know eventually, <coughs> eventually, eventually the market gets it right. Private equity right now has got it right. They're paying up for these cash flows. Predictable, long-term cash flows. Eventually, other people will start paying up for it, too. As far as Chesapeake goes, you know, Lawler has done everything he said he's going to do. You know, he's not a guy out there making grandiose promises. He's not a showman. He's not, you know, this flamboyant running around making all these promises. But you know what? The guy's done what he said he's going to do. He's slowly transforming the company from being almost 100% dependent on natural gas to it's going to be soon 30 to 35% oil. That's going to get them to free cash flow positive much quicker than people think. They have assets for sale. I think it's the Haynesville asset. Although, you know, they've never said that, but I just, being that they're not putting any more 
CapEx into that area because they have better areas and they're you know focusing what they can do best. It would make sense to me that'd be the first to go. They're probably just waiting for better pricing on it. So, you know, yeah, it sucks when you buy things and the price doesn't do it. I mean, look at even even Innovative Industrial Properties. The stock's gotten shellacked the last month and a half, but their growing earnings are 100% a year. They still have no competition in the space. And they have such a, such a runway ahead of them that even if competition came in tomorrow, it, it wouldn't... It wouldn't severely affect results at all. And people worry about the banking bill. Trust me, banks are not going to start writing mortgages for pot, for, for pot growers anytime soon. It's just not going to happen. The whole banking act, what that's for, is for credit card processing. So the feds get their money on, on transactions. That's all that's about. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are not going to buy mortgages from banks on pot companies. They're not going to do it. It's just not going to happen. I've spoken to several bankers and they laughed at the idea. This is all about credit card processing. That's all it is. And making it easier for pot companies to deposit cash into banks instead of safes in the back. So you're not going to see any big competition for IIPR from banks, I would guess, for years. At the end of the day, marijuana is still scheduled, still Schedule 1 drug. Like cocaine, heroin, whatever. Until that changes, banks aren't going to touch it. I don't care, Safe Banking Act, whatever act, whatever. I don't care. Big banks aren't going to touch it. They're not going to loan into it. They're not going to, they just won't do it. So, that, let me see if we have any more questions. I think we're just about done with the questions. And uh, it's been 40 minutes, so I'm going to do one last check in case I miss them because I always end up missing one and I always feel bad about it, so. Give me one second. Yeah, no, I don't see any more. All right, so that's it this week, folks. Um, things are going to start happening in the GSEs. I think things are going to start happening pretty quickly. Um, so hopefully uh, next Friday we have some more news. But um, don't. I'm more encouraged where we are right now with the GSE investment than I was even four months ago. So we're, 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 we're getting to that last stage in it where um, things are looking good. Things are going to happen. Uh, it's it's, it's going to happen, folks. So, and I think it's going to be very good for all of us involved because at the end of the day, you can't treat shareholders like shit <clears throat> and then go out to new shareholders to ask them for money and say, but we won't do that to you. It just doesn't work that way. So I think that we're going to be treated fine. In order for them to go out and raise more money, this is going to have to happen. So um, keep the faith. 
I'm I'm pretty confident in this. So I hope so. I hope everyone has a great weekend. Uh, it looks like it's finally fall here in the Northeast. So have a great and safe weekend, and uh, I'll be back next week.